0: Heavenly Father, uh, we ask now that you would help us to turn our attention to what you might have for us, that uh, we might be aware of your Holy Spirit. We believe that you speak to us through scriptures, you speak to us uh, through one another, you speak to us uh, through messages like this. And so we're asking now uh, that we would not only learn uh, on an intellectual basis, but that you would uh, do things in our hearts and our minds to change the kind of people that we are as we trust you with our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus' primary message in the Gospels, scholars largely agree, is that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is now at hand. Jesus came and what he preached was, the kingdom of God is now available to you. You can live within the kingdom of God. That message got him in trouble, partially because if there is a kingdom, there must be a king. And people often were trying to figure out, as Jesus started traveling around and speaking and preaching and healing... um, people would go, who is Jesus? Jesus, who are you? And who do you say that you are? And what are our expectations supposed to be of you? And as he announced the kingdom of God, some people were asking, are you the Messiah? Messiah means the anointed one. Another way we might translate it is as a king. A king is an anointed one. Are you the leader? Are you the Lord? Are you the one that we're supposed to follow? Are you the one that's gonna bring in all of these expectations that we have of what happens when God takes over and God's kingdom is realized? In John chapter 11, one of those instances happens and uh, John the Baptist, who had sort of prepared the way for Jesus, he was this prophetic figure out in the wilderness uh, and he had a bunch of followers and they were coming to Jesus and saying, are you the Messiah? They're trying to figure it out. John the Baptist, it says in Matthew 11, who was in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing, Jesus. So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? Jesus, are you the king we've been expecting? or not? Jesus always answers this kind of cryptically. This is what he says, though, in Matthew 11. Jesus told them, go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. And tell him, God blesses those who do not turn away because of me. I love that answer because it's not just a yes or no. Jesus says, well, if you want to know if I'm the king bringing the kingdom of God, just look around and see what's happening when I'm around. And these these things that he mentions about the blind seeing, the lame walking, the lepers being cured, the deaf hearing, the dead being raised to life, are allusions to Isaiah, one of the great prophets. And as he wrote about the Messiah that was to come and the expectations people would have to come, these are some of the things that he talked about. But many people, when they would have thought who who the king is, when the king comes, that would not have been their expectation. When the king comes, some people have thought, it means they're gonna drive out the Romans who, uh, by the time uh, that Jesus was an adult, the Romans were occupying uh, and were the, were, were, um, reigning over the Jewish people and many of them thought our king is going to come and he's going to fight. He's going to be uh, the guy who leads an army and, and drives out our enemies and make sure that we are free from that perspective. Uh, they're looking for that tough military person and Jesus comes and I just love what he says. He doesn't say, he doesn't say, yeah, I've come and joined the army. He comes and says, look at people who can't see and can't walk, people who are ill, people who are dead are coming to life and good news are preached to the poor. Oh, that's beautiful, isn't it? You decide. Is that what the king is like? Is that what the king is all about? Is that what the kingdom will be all about? Jesus, when he's asked about if he's the Messiah or if he's the king or not, often, I don't know if he ever answers just with a yes or no, often kind of cryptic. And I think it's because he doesn't want to be labeled with the labels that we often have. He doesn't want to be stuck in the categories that people have. He doesn't want to be stuck with the expectations That people have of the king. Instead, he's setting his own expectations. He wants people to come and see when Jesus shows up, when Jesus walks, when Jesus teaches, what happens for people, what changes. In John chapter 18, we now come to the place just before Jesus is going to be crucified, and the Jews have arrested him, but they've sent him to Pilate, who works for the Romans, and they're basically trying to get him executed, and Pilate has to decide, has he done something that's worth executing? And this is what it says in John 18, starting in verse 33. It says, then Pilate went back into his headquarters and called for Jesus to be brought to him. He said, are you king of the Jews? He asked. Similar question. Are you the Messiah? Are you the promised seed? Implicitly here is, are you the king? Are you a threat to our emperor, the Roman emperor? What are you alleging about yourself? Now, let me stop and just say something for a second. If one of us, if I decided to tell you that I was, we don't have a king. What else? The mayor? The prime minister? If I just started walking around and saying, hey guys, I'm the mayor, or you said, hey Dave, what's your title? And I go, oh, I'm the prime minister of Canada. You, you'd probably think something was wrong. But also, you probably, you know, other than maybe being worried for my mental health, you probably wouldn't be super threatened and be like, oh, Dave's having a rough week. Maybe we should check in on him. Maybe he needs to talk to somebody. Um, But but probably not too many people would notice. Not too many people would, would make a big deal about that. But think about Jesus, for example. This is not just somebody walking around and people going, hey, are you a big, you know, big shot leader? Jesus, like thousands of people gather when Jesus goes somewhere, hundreds of people and thousands of people. So now picture if I'm walking around City Hall, out front of City Hall, and like 10,000 people gather and traffic stops and everybody's, you know, all into it. And then you go, Dave, who do you think you are, the mayor? I go, well, you tell me. Now I, I still might be off base, but now all of a sudden you're wondering. You're going, well, this is a problem. Or you know, some guy, some person's walking around Parliament, and it's not just him walking around saying, "I'm the next Prime Minister." But imagine tens of thousands of people fall. Then all of a sudden the government goes, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! We have a Prime Minister here. Is this a coup?" That's kind of what, what's happening here with Jesus. That's why they're, they're so worried. It's not just because he's making claims. It's because people are making claims about him. And these massive groups of people that could riot and have a revolt are actually following him. So when they're questioning him, are you the Messiah? Are you the king? What they're trying to find out is, are you going to try and overthrow our government? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. Or my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate said, so you are a king. Jesus responded, you say I am a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize that what I say is true. What is truth? Pilate asked. Then he went out again to the people and told them, he is not guilty of any crime, but you have a custom of asking me to release one prisoner each year at Passover. Would you like me to release this king of the Jews? But they shouted back, no, not this man. We want Barabbas. Barabbas was a revolutionary. Barabbas was another one that they were worried was going to overthrow the government. So Jesus, again, just won't answer yes or no. Are you the Messiah? Are you the king? What's going on? And he says, well, you say I'm the king. This is kind of a way of saying, No. you think so? Like he's kind of saying yes without saying yes. But he, he says that my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. doesn't mean that his kingdom, he's saying, is not active in this world, is not practical in this world, is not lived out in this world. He's talking about the authority of his kingdom. He's saying, I'm not a ruler like the Romans. I'm not a ruler like the other Jewish leaders. Uh, but I have been sent... my father, have been sent by God. And so it looks very differently. This is Jesus saying, "The the way that you're talking about being a king is probably different than the way I'm talking about a king. I think what Jesus is trying to say is, yes, I'm a king, but not the way that you might think I am. And so, Jesus is a very political figure, but very different politically than many of us would think. So, today I want to talk a little bit about politics, uh, because religion and politics, that's always fun. Then we'll go down and have a family lunch and have chili, and you can talk about politics, and we can argue about all the things that we like to argue about. Because, let's be honest, there's a lot of things we argue about, even the last little while. I don't think I have to listen, but we have opinions on everything. And then we have opinions on how our government is handling everything. Are they overreaching? Are they underreaching? Are they doing too much, too little? Uh, are the laws good, are the laws bad? Are they representing us? Are they not representing us? Do they represent my values or not mine? Uh, all this kind of stuff. And then we all have opinions, and we all get really uh, divided sometimes. We get fighting about it. Uh, today I want to come and say, what happens if we center Jesus in how we look at politics, how we look at how we live in our world, even politically? Uh, what does Jesus invite us to? What does it mean that Jesus says, uh, "My kingdom is not of this world." And yet he says, "Come and follow me. The kingdom of God is now at hand. You can now live." In In light of the kingdom of heaven, you can now live in light of the kingdom of God. It's going to look so different than the world around you. But that's the invitation. And in this series, we've been talking as we talk about centering Jesus. This idea comes from our Anabaptist roots. uh, This group that came out of the Reformation. uh, And as the Protestants uh, were reforming the Catholic Church, a group of people who said, uh, we we like a lot of these reforms, uh, but we want to go further. And so one of the things they did when they read the scriptures... They found Jesus at the center of that. We talked about that yesterday, and they took very seriously how Jesus called them to live and his uh, his invitation to follow him. And one of the things that they saw is when they read about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, how Jesus was calling them to live. The early Anabaptists said, "This is so different from how our government acts," and they would see that oftentimes the church, big capital C church collectively, uh, when the church gets too aligned with one political movement, with one political ideology, that what happens is over time, the church starts to look more like that political party or, uh, or those other things. And the message of Jesus gets co-opted for the message of someone else. And so uh, many of our Anabaptist ancestors for parents would say, uh, we don't want any part of politics. They separated themselves entirely. They said, we don't believe that we could run or be part Uh, run or uh, uh, be part of the office of politics that there's just too many conflicts of interest that you're put into too many places where you either have to do what's good for uh, your nation or or certain peoples or your political party or you have to choose to follow Jesus and that there's just too many conflicts and so many of them said we're just going to bow out of that process and be away from that conflict so that our number one allegiance can always be Jesus and we're not encumbered by following some kind of political party or ideology. Some of them, even today, some Anabaptists would say that means in a culture like ours, in a democracy, some of them would say, we don't even vote. Because we're so committed to the kingdom of God that that's not, our, that's not our priority. That's not where we're going to put our energy. Now, there's certainly other Anabaptists who'd be informed by this and maybe not take uh, such drastic measures. They might say uh, there's a certain part of our political world where we can participate and maybe do good from the inside. Uh, we're in a democracy, which is a lot better than other forms of government. And so if we have a say, we might as well use that say and vote our conscience. Uh, even if we don't completely agree with one Uh, only one political party Um, and so there is a bit of a range of response in there but the principle remains is that um, I think for our Anabaptist ancestors to say uh, we need to make sure that our number one priority and energy is not to try and change the world through the politics of this world but to commit to following Jesus and being part of the kingdom of this world. So today, wherever you're at on that spectrum and however you feel about our government or governments of the world, what I want to do is talk a little bit about what the kingdom of God looks like and contrast some of what I think are the, 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 the major points on how the kingdom of God differs from the kingdoms of this world. And there are many different and some of them are better than others. And uh, just as we do that, talk about what that means for us and, and how we might commit to first and foremost, if we're followers of Jesus, to following Jesus in the ways of the kingdom of God and inviting people to live in that reality, the presence that, uh, the, the reality that God is present. So first, what is the kingdom of God? If, if Jesus is the king of the kingdom, what is a kingdom? What's the kingdom of God? I like Dallas Willard's definition. He says this, the kingdom of God is God reigning. It is present wherever God wants done, wherever what God wants done is done. It is the range of God's effective will. God's reign is all around you and is from everlasting to everlasting. It is the natural home of the soul. God's kingdom, kind of deep down at its core, is where and when God gets what God wants. When God is on the throne and when people are living in his presence and in his power. It is present all around us, no matter what other kingdoms might be uh, acting and how they might be... producing results in the world. The kingdom of God, as Jesus announced, is now at hand. It's now present to us. We are invited to live in light of the fact that God is reigning, even when it doesn't seem that way, even when we see uh, evidence to the contrary, even when we see other kingdoms that might even be opposed to the kingdom of Jesus operating in this world. So three ways today, the, kingdom, the kingdoms of this world are different from the kingdom of God. Number one, kingdoms of this world modify behavior. Kingdom of God transforms hearts. We have laws in our country, in our province, in our city. Uh, Our government tells us things that we can do and things that we can't do. Some of those laws are really good. Some of those laws probably we have different opinions, but we think could be better. Over the last number of decades, sometimes you see, especially in the Western world, Christian people, um, uh, at least a section of Christian people, who have spent a lot of energy complaining that the laws are becoming less Christian or less um, representative of their views. And again, our Anabaptist uh, ancestors would say, uh, that may be true, and the laws uh, might be better or worse. And you might find yourself uh, more in the majority in your culture or less in the majority. You might find that change change. But we really can't depend or trust that our government is going to do what we believe needs to happen in the world anyways. That our government, to to the best of its ability, is to represent the people, to keep people safe, to help people flourish. And so they have laws that, that they believe will help achieve those goals. Whether you agree with them and I agree with them or not, we set that aside for a second. That's what the government is going to do, try and create a system. Laws are very necessary, and I am not here to say we don't need laws. We absolutely need laws. Jesus knew that we needed laws. Jesus comes in a political and religious system, his Jewish system, that had hundreds of laws. And last week we talked about this. When Jesus addresses those laws, he doesn't say, we just throw out the laws. We don't need them. He says, no, 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 no. Uh, You've got the law and the prophets, and none of those are going to pass away. We're not going to take anything away from them. But he does say, I am here to fulfill them, that those laws are not going to do enough. In fact, one of the things that laws do for us is actually set a floor, not a ceiling, for our behavior, for our morality, for our ethics. Here's what you do. Here's the level you have to get to in order to be legal, in order not to go to jail or get a ticket or be fined. You've got to get to this threshold. What Jesus does in Matthew chapter 5, which we'll look at in a second, is say, you might be looking for the floor what do I have to do to not get in trouble? What do I have to do to follow the law? What do I have to do to be left alone and to be okay? But Jesus will then take it further and said, you're not going, it's not that you go too far, you're not going far enough. He's going to teach us what Jesus' law is, which is to love. And guess what? Love doesn't say, what's the minimum I have to do to get by? Love says, what's the maximum I can do to express how much I love you, how much I care for you, how much I want to protect you. And so Jesus doesn't go, oh, laws are not important. He says, actually, if you're depending on the law, and he's talking about the Jewish law, it's not going to be enough. It's not that it's not necessary because we all need the floor. We all need some basic things that keep us from killing each other, that keep us from whatever, to start teaching us what's right from wrong, the basics of that. But Jesus would tell us that that's not enough. So kingdoms of this world typically will have laws. Some of them, some kingdoms in this world, have been very heavy-handed, very violent, um dictators you know these kind of this is how you must live and you must follow or else and it's just you know an extremely harsh way of living but they try and modify behavior this is what we agree as a society the boundaries that we have to live in for what we do but the kingdom of god says we actually want to go further and in the presence of god we want to allow him to transform our hearts so here's an example matthew chapter 5 this is part of the uh, antitheses we talked about last week where Jesus says, you have heard it said, and then he, he quotes something from his Bible or a common interpretation of his Bible, and then he gives something new. He goes further. So this one, Matthew chapter 5, 27, he says, you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. That's, a, that's kind of a floor level. We don't, don't commit adultery. It's part of our, our laws in marriage. Now in marriage, it, that's not your ultimate goal, right? But you definitely want to be above that goal. So Jesus is going to push further. So this is the law. And you can say, I'm fine, you know, in that whole realm. As long as I don't commit adultery, I'm fine and everything's good. But you could still have a very poor marriage. You could have a very poor view of sex. So he continues and he says, but I say, anyone who looks at a woman, he's talking primarily obviously to men here, with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. This is Torture for our youth group, right? Throw these things out. Sorry, youth pastors. But Jesus goes super hard. I remember I was studying this. I was actually writing a thesis on this passage when I was in school, the whole antithesis section. And I got to this passage. I was writing on it. Every week I'd meet with my professor who was supervising. And I remember we're talking through this. And I said, wow, Jesus here, he's really exaggerating. He's going over the top. Of course, he doesn't want us to cut off our hands. He doesn't want us to pluck out our eyes. Like, that would be ridiculous. He doesn't want to do that. And I remember a professor goes, no, he's not exaggerating. And then he didn't say anything else. Like, that was it. I remember I walked away. I was like, what do you mean he's not exaggerating? Jesus wants to couch out our eyes and cut off if we lust. And that's like, how could anybody live up to that standard all the time? And then, you know, what would happen if people followed that? That's ridiculous. And he was smart because he just, he wasn't gonna give me, the key to this. But the key is right there, if you read it in, in verse 28, Jesus tells us what the problem is. He, he doesn't say the problem is your eye. He says, if the problem was your eye, you should gouge it out because this is a serious problem. The problem was your hand, you should cut it off because it's a serious problem. But really, those are not the problem. Verse 8 tells us what the pro- 28 tells us what the problem is. I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What is it that we need? to follow more rules, to cut off our hand, to gouge out our eyes. No, we need a new heart. We need God to transform how we think We need to be transformed in our inner being, in our inner wills. We need to allow God to to come inside of us to the place where we think about other people and how we think about other people and whether or not they're an object for us or whether or not there's something deeper for us to, to rethink how we think about sex and what that's all about and that it's not just something that's selfish, it's something that's supposed to be in this deep and powerful relationship of commitment. You need a new heart. So the kingdoms of this world might give us these rules. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. That's good, as far as it takes you. And we might lobby our government and wish and put a lot of energy into the laws that we think will represent our beliefs. And we might get it, but we might not. But what if instead of putting all of our energy there, we just asked ourselves, what are my laws? What are my ethics? Am I allowing God to transform my view of sex? You don't like uh, a certain government and their view of the economy, their economic practices, okay? There's laws about how all that works. What's your economic practices? Are you allowing God to transform how you think about your money and your stuff? Is it available to other people? Is it available for God's kingdom? Are you letting generosity work through who you are to people who are in need, to God's purposes? Your relationships and forgiveness. I mean, all of this. There are laws that can modify your behavior, but Jesus Wants us to allow God to change or transform our hearts. Love does what law can't. Love picks up where laws leave off, and it's not that we say, "Great, we should just all be lawless." Doesn't matter. No, nope. Jesus says, "No more loopholes." We're actually going further. We're going deeper into the heart of God, and we need transformation, not just behavior modification. Okay, number two. We'll go quicker. Um, kingdoms of this world are tribal, where the kingdom of God is universal. This is funny to say, we live in a very multicultural place in the GTA. Uh, if you go to school at McMaster University, the entire world is here. Uh, we have people from, from every nation, every continent have come into this part of the world. We're very multicultural. Our culture is very multicultural. We very much talk about being universal and accepting everyone. And yet we find ourselves being very tribal, don't we? We still find ourselves finding the people who are like us and think like us and believe like us and um, act like us. We still find ourselves lining up as people on the left politically or on the right politically. We still find ourselves saying, oh, uh, if you agree with me, we'll be happy, but demonizing people who disagree with us. Pick your issue. Pick your, you know, the mass and the vaccines and what the government is doing about this and that, Uh, economics, taxes, social programs. I mean, just go through all of them. We still line up in our little tribes of what we think and what we believe and how we act We still find our ways to be with people like us and, unfortunately, demonize people who are not like us. Revelation 7, 9, when there's this picture of the kingdom all coming together, says in this vision, after I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb, they were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. People from all over speaking all different languages. The reality is, whether we like it or not in our world, um, many people are very nationalistic, I think we're very fortunate to be in Canada, to be in the place where we are. But the way that uh, nations in our world protect themselves is to wage war against others. In Jesus' kingdom, we say we're all family. That we're all coming together one day, that now we should be living that out. That the us versus them, that the waging war of those boundaries... There needs to be an alternative to that, an alternative society. People who say there must be a better way, there must be something different. Ephesians 2.14, so much of the New Testament, in light of this teaching of Jesus, that, that Jew and non-Jew are coming together, so much of the New Testament is trying to figure out how people who are Jewish and follow their laws and have you know, all their culture and all their boundaries come together with people that don't. Ephesians 2 says, For he himself, speaking of Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in the flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. In the cross, we find that God loves the entire world. In the ancient world, it was very common to say, We have our interests, our people, and our gods, and our God fights against your God. God, and the strongest God will win and be victorious. The good news of Jesus is there's one God who loves all people from all nations with all languages, and we come together as one humanity together. Our interests are our interests, not just mine versus yours. Third thing, most kingdoms of this world exercise power over, but the kingdom of God is power under. As I referenced, most kingdoms uh, in this world, the way that they get what they want, protect what they want, is through violence, through the sword, sometimes through coercion. Again, I'm actually of the opinion that in Canada, uh, we have, as far as kingdoms of this world go, uh, we're ahead of so many places and so many places in history. We should be grateful for that in many ways. Doesn't mean it's perfect, doesn't mean there's ways we wish it wasn't better, Uh, but certainly, there have been very many very violent regimes both internally and externally. But the way that the kingdoms of this world operate is power over people, is strong people, rich people, powerful people, mandating or dictating how the system works and everybody else either following in line or not. But Jesus brings a completely different new way of things. No threats, no judgment, no shame, no social presence, but rather the Holy Spirit working in people's hearts to bring about transformation That results in a Christ-like love. Here's what I would say if I was going to wrap up all together. Christians are not called to be more conservative or more liberal, but more Christ-like. As followers of Jesus, we are not called to align with a political party. If you think that Jesus aligns with your political party 100%, you're probably following your political party more than you're following Jesus. That Jesus says, I am creating an alternate society. The kingdom of God is now at hand. It's now available. Sometimes might that look more conservative? Yes. Sometimes might it more liberal? Yes. Sometimes might it more be down the center? Yes. Although, by the way, when I say not liberal or conservative, I don't mean just line up in the center. I mean line up with Christ. Not more conservative or liberal, more Christ-like. That our number one allegiance is to follow Jesus and there to live in his presence, to live in the kingdom. When we make Jesus Lord, when we make him king, we get all the things that he offers us in the kingdom. We get his grace, we get his forgiveness, we get his teaching, the way of life. We see the cross at the center of it all, and we see how Jesus lived for us, died for us, Rose again has power over all things in the universe and now calls us then to live in that reality. Do we believe that the power of God, the power of the kingdom of God is more powerful than the kingdoms of this world? And that is a great question because the answer will decide for you how you live your life, what your values are. Are we becoming more Christ-like? At the end of the day, we might all have our political views, it's valid. You're allowed to have them. We live in a democracy. Many people haven't had that privilege. But as Jesus' followers, we're called to his kingdom first and foremost as our priority and as our way of life and what we trust in. Let me give you an example, and then uh, I want to give us an opportunity to have communion together um, and in some ways to pledge our allegiance to the kingdom of God in that uh, This is the politics of Jesus that I'm going to talk about, the way of Jesus, the power under, the power to serve, uh, not to coerce, the power to love sacrificially, uh, not just to top-down, heavy-handed, tell people how they must live. Just before Jesus was arrested, he was celebrating Passover with his disciples. He's remembering the time when God brought his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, and Jesus sits down with his disciples, and here's what it says, Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. Knew he was going to die. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth and now he loved them to the very end. Just notice this verse. It was time for supper. Important phrase and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table. Actually, the beginning of verse four literally says, so he got up from supper. Verse two, it was time for supper. And at supper... Jesus knew that he was going to die. At supper, the devil was already working in Judas. At supper, evil was about to do its worst. At supper, the plot to kill Jesus was underway. At supper, everything was falling apart. And then in verse four, it says, so he got up from the table. Literally, it says he got up from supper, at supper. But now Jesus gets up from supper. And John's been kind of smoothing things over in his gospel and things have been moving really quick from a linguistic perspective and a lot of events are happening. And now all of a sudden, evil is at foot, at supper. And Jesus rises from supper. And if you're reading this for the first time, what are you expecting to happen? Lightning to come down and strike Judas. An earthquake to happen and shake everything so that Jesus can escape. An army of angels to come down and to conquer all of Jesus' enemies so that he is raised up and that he leads. At supper, evil is at work. But during supper, Jesus stands up with all the power of the kingdom of God. And now John slows down and narrates every little detail so that we won't miss what's happening. Jesus took off his robe Wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. In the face of great evil that was going to put Jesus on a cross, Jesus took the place of a servant and he washed his disciples' feet. Do we believe in the power of the kingdom of God, the power of self sacrificing love? the power of serving others. What will be our ethics? What will be our morality? What will be our politics? Where will we put all of our energy? We could put all of our energy in trying to fight for every law in our government to be, quote-unquote, more Christian. Or we can start asking ourselves, what's our politics? What do I stand for? Am I living in the kingdom of God? Am I living out what God has called me to do. Am I following Jesus and do I believe in his power? So when I say that, uh, we got to be realistic about the fact that when we read those things, Sermon on the Mount, different things that Jesus has taught us, you're going to come to a point where you go, I can't live up to that. I mean, I can barely follow the laws, the bare minimum, let alone go to the maximum of loving the way that Jesus loved, of giving myself, giving my life to the people around me, even to my enemy. I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can be there. Of course you can't. Of course I can't. It's impossible. But in the kingdom of God, we receive grace. And what Jesus was doing when he celebrated the Passover supper, he gave his disciples bread. He broke it. He gave it to them. He said, this is my body. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to give you everything you need for what I'm calling you to do. I'm going to give you the strength to do it. He will tell them that he's going to give them his spirit to empower them, to transform them, that they can depend on the spirit of God to live in the kingdom of God. And then he would give them wine and he would say, this wine, this is the cup of the covenant, my covenant of forgiveness. Of course you can't live up to this, but when you come into the kingdom, you get grace. You get forgiveness. You get reconciliation. I'll pour out my blood. I'll give you everything to show that you are welcome into this kingdom. You can live into my kingdom, even when you don't live up to my kingdom. So uh, in the chair in front of you, there's a little cup, a little package like this. If you want to grab it now. We're just going to take a minute. Sometimes there's a lot of words and a lot of preaching. Uh, I think this is is the message of the good news of Jesus. Right here in your hand, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. That's the message. That's the politics of Jesus. Jesus saying, I died for you. I give you everything that you need. I forgive you. Give you grace. Give you my spirit so that you can live in the presence of God. Become aware. So let's just take a couple of minutes. um, If if you're not a follower of Jesus today, by the way, um, you got a bit of a snapshot today. Uh, If you're exploring, love that. And we'd love to answer questions. And this is a safe place for you to ask what that looks like for you if you're interested. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, this is a moment to take uh, these two elements and to remember that Jesus died for us and that he lives for us and that he's coming again to set all things right. So uh, I'm just going to offer a moment of silence, of quiet, for us to reflect on the reality that Jesus gave his life for us to offer us his kingdom to offer us his forgiveness his grace the strength to follow him so I'm going to pray and then just give a couple of quiet moments when you're ready um, this package, the top, you can peel off and there's a little wafer that's the body of Christ representative that Jesus gave his life for you his body for you strength for your spiritual journey strength for everything that you need And then when you're ready, you can peel the next uh, tab and you can drink the juice. That is uh, representative of the blood of the covenant, forgiveness of sins. And perhaps now is a moment in, in the next couple of minutes. You'll have a chance to even confess some of the ways that you know you've fallen short, things that you've done or you've not done, to acknowledge them, to ask for forgiveness, and to know now that you receive. And in these moments perhaps when we think of all the ways that God is asking us to serve everyone else and love everyone else. And in those moments where you would say, that's too hard for me, that's too much for me. It seems like a lot of energy. I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can do it. First, receive. God's given you all those things already. He's loved you. He's forgiven you. Continues to serve you and I, his body, the church. And so just a minute or so of of quiet, When you're ready, go ahead and partake in the body and the blood.